M-S-W Media. Thanks to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode. Take a bite out of summer with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com slash CLEANUP50 and use code CLEANUP50 for 50% off plus free shipping. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Welcome to episode 131 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, July 26th, and I'm your host, Pete Strzok. And I'm Allison Gill. Uh, Today, Pete, we're going to cover the Michigan indictment of all 16 of that state's fraudulent electors, as well as a series of court losses for Trump, including the E. Jean Carroll case and the Manhattan DA's criminal case. Yeah, we also have new details on the forthcoming charges in the Fulton County Republican election interference case. Hunter Biden's attorney filing an ethics complaint against Marjorie Taylor Greene and the House committee hearings that led to it. But first, let's thank some of our new patrons. We've got Deborah Sipich or Sipic, Dylan, Mary Lee, Colleen Seasons, Lori Hawkins, Vicki N, Phyllis Clugston, Jessica Anderson, Annie Dutta, Brandy Hendricks, Gail B5 Raven or Bravo 5 Raven if she's if she's military Nicholson and Chad Kruzowski. Yes, awesome. Thank you so much. Um our patrons are amazing. You make this show possible. You make everything run. Uh if you want to become a patron, have a shout out. You can go to patreon.com/aisle45pod. That's A I S L E 45 P O D. All right, uh, Pete, let's jump in with the indictment of all 16 of the fraudulent Trump electors in Michigan. Now, uh, of course, some of these uh, electors have come forward to say, we didn't know, we had no idea, we just signed our name on a sign-in sheet, and they used those signatures on this uh, false certificate. But uh, Dana Nessel, I think, has all the receipts. And here are the counts, okay? there's and eat, all, all 16 of these folks have been charged with all uh, eight of these counts. One count of conspiracy to commit forgery, two counts of forgery, one count of conspiracy to commit uttering and publishing, one count of uttering and publishing, one count of conspiracy to commit election law forgery, and two counts of election law forgery. Now, the conspiracy and the forgery and the uttering and publishing are all 14-year felonies, max, obviously, and the uh, election law forgery and conspiracy of election law forgery are five-year felonies apiece. And I imagine, Pete, that because, you know, I don't know, I'm really not well-versed in Michigan law or Michigan sentencing recommendations, but I have to assume a lot of these would be grouped together for sentencing recommendation purposes. Uh, But they're still looking at 14 plus 5 as a maximum sentence, even if they group all of the forgery and uttering and publishing things together. Um, and uh, and then, of course, group the election law forgery stuff together. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think we're going to learn a lot from whatever sentencing recommendation, you know, provided there are convictions here that come out that comes out uh, from Dana Nessel, the attorney general's office, when this all happens. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? No, I think it's there are a couple of interesting things that I'm looking for. One is that there's some indication that, you know, these were a lot of folks and there's some indication at least one of them has said, hey, look, I was set up. I was told to sign a blank piece of paper. The Trump people made me do it. So I'm very curious to see that, you know, now's the time. If you have any time you get a group of indicted folks 
this large, I mean, 16, uh, there are going to be varying levels of um, culpability. And I think what you're seeing right now are some people and their attorneys angling to cut a deal, right, to come in mm. and provide testimony. And, you know, to the extent I'm very curious, one, to see if uh, – Dana Nessel and, and the prosecutors are interested in doing that. Certainly there's some, you know, if there's compelling testimony that somebody might be willing to give that would help with the other prosecutions, it will be interesting to see if that happens. And the other thing I'm really looking to see, I mean, the, Nessel made this really, she she had a great um, news conference when she announced these charges, kind of explaining both the rationale for doing it, you know, laying out some of the history in Michigan uh, law and prosecution, saying, you know, this is not unusual. Here are these a whole bunch of examples of how we have applied, uh, you know, prosecutions of election violations in the past. And then she said something really interesting. She said, our hope is that the federal authorities and the Department of Justice and the United States Attorney General Merrick Garland will take this in coordination with all the other information they've received and make an evaluation as to what charges these individuals might face. So, you know, she's clearly thinking that, uh, you know, there's some, she had in the past, we know that Michigan had forwarded these allegations to the feds and some indication that Nestle had reopened this case when DOJ didn't charge. And so she's signaling again in announcing the Michigan state charges that, hey, look, we believe, it sure sounds like we believe there are federal offenses here and that what we are charging is consistent with a broader pattern of behavior, not just in the state of Michigan, but across the board. And so I'm I'm curious to see how DOJ approaches Michigan in particular, but this broad pattern of activity uh, in general. Yeah, yeah, no, me too. Now, if you go to the Michigan website, the state website, it says that these defendants are alleged to have met covertly in the basement of the Michigan Republican Party headquarters on December 14th, signed their names to multiple certificates stating that they were the duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president of the United States of America for the state of Michigan, unquote. It goes on to say these false documents were then transmitted to the United States Senate and the National Archives in a coordinated effort to award the state's electoral votes to the candidate of their choosing in place of the candidates actually elected by the people of Michigan. And here's a quote from the website. The evidence will demonstrate there was no legal authority for the false electors to purport to act as duly elected presidential electors and execute the false electoral documents. Every serious challenge to the election had already been denied, dismissed, or otherwise rejected by the time the false electors convened. There was no legitimate legal avenue or plausible use of such a document or an alternative slate of electors. There was only the desperate effort of these defendants who we have charged with deliberately attempting to interfere with and overturn our free and fair election process, and along with it, the will of millions of Michigan voters. That the effort failed and democracy prevailed does not erase the crimes of those who enacted the false electors plot, unquote. Now, something interesting, too, it also says on the website that this remains an ongoing investigation and that the Michigan Department of, Attorney, of the Attorney General has not ruled out potential charges against additional defendants in this case. So I think that's very interesting to point out that it's still ongoing. Yeah. And what I would love to see, if you remember, is that, uh, you know, Senator Ron Johnson, or at least people out of his office, Senator of Wisconsin, not Michigan, was involved in allegedly delivering or trying to deliver this false slate or information about it to Mike Pence. And of course, you know, this is when you know, approached on the street outside the Capitol, Ron Johnson, you know, engaged in a power walk to try and get away from the uh, reporters who are asking him about this. I, I don't, I mean, I, I can't see Ron Johnson being racked up on Michigan state charges, but I'm sure this does little to not enhance the interstate rivalry between Michigan and uh, Wisconsin. But, you know, w what's interesting too, in some of these, you know, if you dive down into the specifics of the allegations, there are some very specific requirements in Michigan state law, for instance, that, you know, the electors have to meet in a chamber of the state capitol. And what's interesting, you know, Kenneth Cheesebro, if you remember the name, actually flagged in an email that we've seen through the January 6th committee, and I'm certain that um, Jack Smith and other folks in the DOJ have, in a December 9th memo, memo he actually flagged, he was going through all the prospect of the various, you know, alternate fake uh, state electoral slates and highlighting the problematic states and the states that shouldn't have a problem. And specifically, though, he said Michigan required electors meet in the Senate chamber of the state capitol, which he called, quote unquote, awkward. 
<laughs> given that Whitmer would be presiding over the meeting of Biden's electors in the same spot. He then went on and he talked about Nevada's law as being extremely problematic for the effort because it required the involvement of the Secretary of State, which had already certified Biden's win, and that he concluded the plan was unpro- unproblematic in Arizona and Wisconsin. And then finally, you had the slightly problematic in Michigan and followed by somewhat dicey, quote unquote, in Georgia and Pennsylvania. So you do have, again, you know, going to that, you know, the quote from Nestle saying, hey, feds, I, I hope you were looking at this in, in the context of the coordination of all this activity, particularly because you had this, you know, you had Cheesebro laying out that, look, Michigan state law requires that this goes on and takes place in the in a, a chamber of the Capitol. And as alleged, at least by the state of Michigan, they did not meet in a chamber of the Capitol. I think they met in a Republican, some sort of Republican office somewhere, but just on its face, not only did they allegedly violate the law there, but they did it specifically in the way that Cheesebro warned uh, m- that might be, quote unquote, slightly problematic. And in fact, yes, it has proved to be slightly problematic for those 16 <laughs> folks in Michigan. So, yeah. And there were also emails about how we have to keep this quiet, you know, or we need to keep this quiet. And all of that just sort of um, elevates the evidence or the idea that what they were doing was illegal. Like, this is going to be a problem because of laws. Like, you know, that's kind of a, a, a sort of a straight out admission or at least, a, a you know, a understanding of corrupt intent uh, for, for these electors and for the leaders, which, like you said, I'm sure Jack Smith has and is, is reviewing or has already reviewed uh, with regard to the fraudulent elector scheme uh, plotters, like the coordinators, all the Mike Romans and... Eastman's and Rudy Giuliani's and Bernard Carrick's of the world. Uh, and there were like 16 other lawyers in the first round of subpoenas that went out. Jenna Ellis, like, like everybody who had their hand, the two Olsons that had their hands in, in coordinating the fraudulent electors across these seven states. Yeah. And it is, you know, Michigan is just one. There's a, a related story where Arizona has ramped up its criminal investigation into its state's fraudulent electors with the attorney general. This is in Arizona having assembled a team of prosecutors back in May. Investigators are looking at a range of Republican-led efforts to overturn results of the 2020 election, including the so-called Cyber Ninja Audit, <laughs> a company name which screams credibility and quality the Cyber Ninjas, which mm. was the only privately run recount of ballots in America. Uh, the Attorney General's office confirmed on Tuesday it had launched a criminal investigation into GOP efforts. But spokesperson Richie Taylor said he could not discuss the scope of the inquiry or any specific details. So, you know, Michigan, you know, God bless them on the uh, on the forefront of the efforts, but they're by no means the, the only folks looking at this. Kudos for, you know, sort of the aggressive... Uh, prosecution of this behavior. And remember too, like Michigan was out in front when it came to sanctioning all these various attorneys who had pushed through this crap. They were on the forefront, not only of recommending uh, bar sanctions, but actually judicial sanctions, you know, paying, you know, financial sanctions against a lot of the attorneys who were involved in this sort of fraudulent litigation. So, so Michigan's been a trailblazer and continues to be, uh, but there's more coming down the pike. Yeah. And let's be clear. I know a lot of people are like, why did she just assemble this team in May? Um, Myers over there, the attorney general in Arizona. It's it's of note. And we should remember that it was only in January of this year that Katie Hobbs and the, and her new attorney general, um, Myers, took office uh, because that election for for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, that all happened uh, in at the end of 2022. So that's why, you know, it's been taking so long. They had already uh, begun investigating, but it, then it was in May that they assembled a larger team of prosecutors to to take, uh, you know, a deeper look into the fraudulent elector scheme in Arizona. And so we could very well be seeing charges come out of Arizona. I mean, if it goes by the other timelines next year, uh, but, <laughs> but they are investigating. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that ends up. Because we know that the Michigan Attorney General has been on it for a while. Yeah, you know, and Fonnie Willis, I mean, everybody's focused on Trump, but keep in mind, she has been looking at all of Georgia's uh, false electors too. So yet another state that was, you know, putting forth a slate of bogus electors, I think there's a really decent chance. And again, we're looking, I mean, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but we're soon um, potential charges out of Fulton County are coming. So that would also potentially include, uh, you know, false electors as well. So there, there are a lot of things going on and you're right. Um, you know, don't, don't things... I, I think you're absolutely right that people should appreciate that 
investigations take time, prosecutions take time, certainly in the context of elected officials who are, you know, replacing people who are unwilling to look at certain alleged criminal behavior, you know, that that delays the start of things. But there are a lot of different moving pieces across several states at this point, and uh, there's more to come. Yeah, because Brnovich, the former attorney general in Arizona, Republican attorney general, would not uh, investigate the fraudulent elector scheme, although he was subpoenaed and did did comply with subpoenas from uh, the Department of Justice uh, on the fraudulent elector scheme that took place in Arizona. So there we are. Uh, all right. We have a lot more news to get to. Um, we're going to pivot to Fulton County uh, a little more broadly, but we do have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. On the menu today, we have HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a service that sends fresh ingredients and foolproof recipes straight to your home, which I definitely need. I was never a very good cook, but HelloFresh has made me one. It's the perfect culinary companion, transforming your kitchen into a a wonderful playground of taste and creativity. It's so much fun. Say hello to stress-free, delectable home cooking. From chef-crafted seasonal recipes to their new fresh and fit summer menu, HelloFresh brings flavor right to your door. Go to HelloFresh.com slash cleanup50 and use code cleanup50 for 50% off plus free shipping. One of my new favorite meals from HelloFresh is their sweet and spicy apricot chicken. It is a blend of sweet, heat, and lip-smacking goodness. It's so delicious. It starts with a juicy chicken cutlet under a drizzle of tangy apricot ponzu sriracha sauce. It's got a nice kick to it. Then they add aromatic garlic rice and tender green beans on the side. It really takes everything to the next level. And with HelloFresh, you have time on your hands and a plate full of amazing food. Their step-by-step instructions and pre-portioned ingredients make cooking quick and easy, giving you everything you need to whip up a delicious meal. And talk about fresh, I mean, you'll get the cream of summer produce. Traveling farm to door in under seven days. It gets there so fast and it's fresh and delicious, flavorful and hassle-free. HelloFresh is simply the best. So go to HelloFresh.com slash CleanUp50 and use code CLEANUP50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, We have a few more new patrons to thank. Meredith Purser, Vicki Hurd, just here for the swearing. Love that. Molly Lachance, Peter Struck One. Okay. Sea Breeze. I like big pods and I cannot lie. Barbie uh, Shabley, Cheryl O, Angie's Majewski, Gregory Ryan, and Hannah Johnson. I apologize if I mispronounced anyone's name, but thank you so much. You are the engine that makes this show run. Thank you. Thank you. We cannot thank you enough. Uh, All right, let's pivot over to Fulton County, where we are expecting forthcoming indictments for the 2020 Republican election interference in Georgia. Hugo Lowell at The Guardian has new reporting confirming the nature of the charges we're about to see. We have long heard that she's looking at racketeering, and now we have that confirmation. Uh, Hugo writes, the Fulton County DA investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia has developed evidence to charge a sprawling racketeering indictment next month. In the Trump investigation, the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, has evidence to pursue racketeering indictments predicated on statutes relating to influencing witnesses and computer trespass. Now, Willis, like we said previously, talked about weighing racketeering charges. Uh, But these new details about the direction and scope are new, and they come as prosecutors are expected to seek indictments starting in the first two weeks of August. The racketeering statute, Pete, in Georgia, it's more expansive than its federal counterpart. And that's because any attempts to solicit or coerce the qualifying crimes can be included as predicate acts of racketeering, even when those crimes can't be indicted separately. So that's one of the main differences from federal RICO. Now, the charge regarding influencing witnesses, we don't have details about that, but Hugo says it could include Trump's conversations with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Now, for the computer trespass charge, where prosecutors would have to show that defendants used a computer or network without authority to interfere with a program or data, that could include or would include the breach of voting machines in Coffee County. And actually, Hugo's sources say that it does. Uh, the breach of voting machines involved a group of Trump operatives we know, paid for by then-Trump lawyer Sidney Powell, accessing the voting machines at the county's election office and copying sensitive data uh, from that voting system. Though Coffee County is outside the normal jurisdiction of the Fulton County DA's office, because there's a racketeering law, because racketeering is part of this, that statute kind of umbrellas it. It would allow prosecutors to also charge what the Trump operatives did there by showing it was all aimed toward the same goal of corruptly keeping Trump in office. So very interesting 
uh, points here about the state racketeering laws in Georgia versus federal RICO. Yep. And, you know, Fonnie Willis has a has a history, a, a successful history of charging and using Georgia's RICO law. This is not sort of the first time she's dived into the statute. She she understands it. She has used it in cases in Georgia before. So it is different. You know, a lot of the I, I would caution everybody sometimes, you know, you get former federal prosecutors uh, talking about RICO, which is a different – I mean, there's a federal RICO statute. It was developed primarily uh, to to use against organized crime and organized criminals. It's different though than than George's and I think sometimes you'll, you'll hear people talking about RICO in the context of the federal RICO law and, you know, as you noted, it is different at the state level. I'm really interested to see, again, how broad when we get this, you know, indictment, which I would expect in the next couple of weeks, as you said, really curious to see how broad it is. I mean, I think a lot of folks will focus on Trump, but the question is always, you know, there's potentially so much chargeable uh, alleged illegal activity, it could be quite broad. And Hugo Lowell is saying that, you know, it's sprawling. So there's always the challenge when you get something that is uh, very wide in the number of participants that you can charge it, but there's a balance between saying, look, there was all this uh, criminal activity going on and we're going to charge it, but you've also got to explain it to the jury. And it makes for a very particularly um, complex because every single count that you introduce, every single crime has the elements of that that you've got established by evidence and that as a juror, as a set of jurors, as a prosecutor, you've got to start weighing the balance between saying, okay, I want to tell a complete story. I want to indict and hold accountable the various people who engaged in alleged criminal activity. But at the same time, the more I add, the more I've got to explain and introduce evidence-wise. So that's not to say that, you know, we, we've seen, you know, jurors, certainly the special purpose grand jury, taking their job very seriously, going through the evidence very carefully. I think there's every indication that that could and will take place, whatever Fonnie Willis and, and her prosecutors decide to bring. But it, it it's going to be an interesting trade-off when we get this. I, you know, it's not going to be some simple sort of open and shut Trump Mar-a-Lago indictment. I think this has the potential to be a very um, complex case. And then the next question, of course, is how much does Fonnie Willis choose to lay out in the charging document? Is it just a bare bones charging document which establishes the elements of the crimes that are charged? Or is it what's called a speaking indictment, right? Something that is much more detailed, which is much more robust, which lays out a lot more information. And again, the standards in Georgia state court are very different from federal court. So I, I think this reporting from Hugo is um, an indication that we're going to get quite a bit of detail. And that we are going to see people both that all of us have heard of, you know, potentially Donald Trump, potentially people around him, even including attorneys, but also getting down into, you know, those Georgia false electors and Georgia officials or other folks that maybe aren't nearly as much of a household name outside of Georgia, at least. So I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to see it quite soon. Yeah, uh, I do, too. And and we also know that uh, David Schaefer, who is the former ex-GOP head, party head down there in Georgia, has written a 14-page letter to Fonnie Willis stating that, um, look, you can't indict me because it is, you know, forgery, my right to forge documents is protected under the First, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendments. <laughs> and that also, hey, we were advised by very reputable lawyers uh, that we could do this legally. These reputable lawyers have now all been sanctioned and several are about to be disbarred and even more are about to be arrested. So I don't know how that argument's going to fly, uh, but he seemed very defiant and pissy in the letter. It was, like, I, I don't think it's going to do any good. I think it was more for an audience of, uh, of uh, you know, supporters and, and alt-right uh, base than for the actual district attorney. Uh, you might have made a nicer or more compelling argument had, <laughs> had that been the case. Uh, but yeah, they've got 16 electors there, too. However, eight at least are uh, have limited immunity. Um, we know that the after the special purpose grand jury was done, we learned that the lawyer for 10 of these fraudulent electors, they all had the same lawyer, failed to present an immunity deal to them as ordered by the court, as a matter of fact. Um, and that lawyer was pulled off of this case for that, um, you know, miscon like misconduct, unethical. You can't do that when you're a lawyer. Uh, and then she brought in and immunized and talked to at least eight of these electors. So 
We may not see, like we did in Michigan, all of the electors uh, being indicted here. But there are, you know, certainly, like you said, it's a sprawling case. Uh, I, I I looked at her RICO indictment back in 2015-ish for the education, you know, the education administra- administrators cheating um, on their test scores and lying about their test scores. And it was a very detailed speaking type indictment. It wasn't just sort of bare bones. So I think we might end up seeing a similar kind of indictment. Uh, at least that's her kind of history. This was RICO recent RICO history. Um, so we, you know, we'll end up, we'll end up knowing a lot more here in not very long. We're, we're looking at, um, you know, probably before August 21st, uh, at the outside, uh, when these are released and, or, you know, arraigned. So it's going to be, I'm with you. I'm very interested to see how these apply, who they apply to, how far up it goes. If anything, would overlap potentially with a January 6th indictment from the feds uh, for, you know, for the fraudulent elector scheme for conspiracy to defraud the United States. What, you know, if they're going to split the baby here, it's going to be very interesting to see how this, this all sort of plays out. I have a feeling it'll be Rico with all of the underlying crimes that don't have to be charged. And then those crimes would be charged on the federal level. Uh, I think that might be how, how this breaks down, but Again, uh, we'll see, but great, great reporting uh, from Hugo Lowell. So we thank him for that. Um, I know you're really excited to speak um, calmly and rationally about some of the hearings that happened in the (laughs) Oversight Committee and the Weaponization Committee last week. Um, uh, I'm actually extremely still ongoingly pissed off about this because I mean, not only is it a clown show and a waste of taxpayer dollars, and, a, and a, but it but it just it gives a bad name to the institution of the House of Representatives, uh, which has kind of been going downhill for a while. Um, and so we will talk about um, all of that, but we do have to take another quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the oversight and weaponization hearings that happened this past week. And to start... Let's roll a clip of some of ranking member Jamie Raskin's opening remarks. So what happened? Well, the son of the sitting president of the United States lost his brother and then lost his way 
badly back in 2015. As too many families around the country know, drug addiction is a dark and powerful affliction. And like other addicts, Hunter Biden made foolish and criminal choices, including failing to pay his taxes and owning a firearm in violation of federal law. And he's now being held criminally accountable for it. His investigation began under the Trump administration. It was conducted by a U.S. attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, who Donald Trump appointed to his office and who Attorney General Barr chose for this assignment to conduct this investigation. In his final press conference in December of 2020, Attorney General Barr expressed full confidence in Weiss's work, saying it was, quote, being handled responsibly and professionally within the department. And to this point, I have seen no reason to appoint a special counsel, and I have no plan to do so before I leave. Furthermore, Joe Biden never publicly questioned or challenged this prosecution. When it began, he did not decry it as a witch hunt by Donald Trump. He placed his trust in the fairness of the American justice system. When he became president, not only did he not use his power to halt the investigation, he kept in place Trump's hand-picked U.S. attorney, Mr. Weiss, overseeing it, even though incoming presidents usually replace U.S. attorneys with their own appointees. And his attorney general, Merrick Garland, made sure that Mr. Weiss, appointed by Donald Trump, had full authority and resources to pursue this probe and charge it however and whenever he saw fit in any district in the country. And in the past few weeks, as Hunter Biden accepted a guilty plea, the president and his attorney general have done nothing to interfere with the case, which is overseen by a federal judge appointed by, yes, Donald Trump. Uh, I... I cannot get enough of hearing Jamie Raskin speak. His opening remarks were on point. Now, he would go on to say, quote, if my GOP colleagues think that the treatment of millions of tax scoff laws or even the handful who face criminal prosecution like Hunter Biden is too lenient, I invite them to join us, join the Democrats in supporting the $80 billion for the IRS that we included in the Inflation Reduction Act. And I thought that that was uh, really brilliant because it was so painful to sit there and watch these two IRS whistleblowers talk about how they didn't have, they need more resources and they want to be able to go after tax cheats and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Yet that is something that uh, the Republicans have been decrying now for uh, for quite a while since the Inflation Reduction Act was was written up and, and more funding for the IRS was there. They don't want the IRS to come knocking on their doors. That's what it is. They want to be able to direct the IRS to the people they hate. Pete, you know about that probably a little more personally yeah. than others. Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, what's absurd is that just today, as you know, as we're taping, it's on this last uh, Monday, the IRS announced that agents will no longer knock on taxpayers' doors unannounced because of fear for agent safety. We have such our, our wonderful Second Amendment gun-toting culture has made it so dangerous that as a matter of policy, the IRS says, hey, look, we're not going to do any knock on your door without uh, calling first. So it, it is, as you kind of noted, as you know, Congressman Raskin noted, an absolutely absurd situation where on the one hand, even the Republicans whistleblowers are saying, we need, we have unaddressed work. We need more resources. We, and, and, and the same people, the same Republicans who are calling them in at the same time are saying, nope, you can't have them, which I, you know, again, we, and we can talk a, a, about these, the, the two whistleblowers here coming up, but I know they weren't the folks at the IRS in charge of auditing Donald Trump or the Trump corporation in all its way in all its forms and all the allegations that came out of the state of New York and referred to the IRS and the Southern District in New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office up in New York. I am very curious, having had all of this deep, detailed information and Marjorie Taylor Greene throwing up just awful, terrible photographs and graphics, which are absolutely unbecoming, probably secretly titillating to her and her little dark cabins of her mind somewhere. But in all of this dialogue and discussion, it would be very interesting to hear just the slightest bit of information about where are the investigations of all this alleged criminal activity and tax fraud on the part of Trump and the, you know, the Trump organizations? Where are all these, the, the mandatory by policy presidential audits that are supposed to take place of presidents while they're in the White House that somehow were neither not done or delayed because the IRS found Trump's finances to be too complicated 
Yet we can spend years and God knows how much money going after Hunter Biden, but we can't even bother to get to the the policy mandated audits of Trump yeah. because it's too hard. It's too yeah. hard. And and going after Hunter Biden for like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, and that's sort of what we kind of to to hear these. I think it was Shapley and a guy named Ziegler to hear their testimony before Congress about their frustrations with not having charges, more charges, you know, more and bigger and juicier charges brought against Hunter Biden. Um, it, it, it was kind of stunning in the face of what everyone says we can't do with regard to the Trump stuff, uh, the Trump tax audits, the federal, uh, you know, all that stuff. So I remember, you know, watching this, um, Shapley claimed that David Weiss, who was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, uh, and when, you know, Raskin reminded us that when Biden came into office, normally it's normal to fire every single U.S. attorney and replace them with your own U.S. attorneys, didn't do that. Let Weiss stay. Let Durham stay. So he could finish investigating his son, right? And the the main point of contention here seems to be that Shapley says that David Weiss asked for special counsel status and wanted to make more charges, but was denied in a meeting during an October 7th meeting. But that's in direct conflict with what David Weiss himself has said in multiple letters to House Republicans saying, Look, I had every authority in the world. I could have charged crimes wherever I wanted to. These are the prosecutorial discretion decisions that I made. And it seems to be... What we have here is something that happens a lot between law enforcement and prosecutors, where law enforcement is like, come on, we got him dead to rights. We should be charging him. But, you know, feeling like somebody has committed a crime and proving it in court and maintaining it on appeal beyond a reasonable doubt are two totally separate things. That's why prosecutors make those. It's called prosecutorial discretion, not law enforcement discretion uh, for a reason. So it just seems like you've got a couple of guys here who wish there were more charges uh, and which happens all the time, and they didn't get them. Uh, we, I mean, we even found out a little bit later that that Shapley guy wanted to charge at least ninety percent of the uh, in in crimes he investigated or potential crimes that he investigated. Like he's a a real bulldog there, and has had many conflicts with prosecutors uh, before Hunter Biden about why people aren't getting uh, charged. Now the other whistleblower, Ziegler, claimed that there was about a hundred thousand dollars of personal expenses that Hunter Biden wrote off as business expenses that still haven't been paid back, right? Because the idea here is that he's, you know, he's going to get probation uh, on two misdemeanor counts of, of failing to pay taxes because he has since paid the taxes back. But Ziegler contends that there's like a hundred grand there, $102,000 that has not yet been paid back that he thinks are uh, personal expenses that were written off as business expenses. And that is why he believes that there is huge corruption and should be a special counsel appointed to investigate this particular 100 and something thousand dollars. I thought that was, I just couldn't, he couldn't sell me on that, even with his bullshit. Yeah, look, I don't, I mean, listening to the two of them, I didn't get the sense that, you know, this was not the case with some of the, you know, FBI whistleblowers where you hear like the the story the, the night before the morning of them coming in to testify that several of them had their security clearances revoked because in, of engaging in, you know, behavior that, you know, certainly broke FBI policy and potentially broke the law. These, you know, they struck me as two investigators who were aggressive, who felt that when it came to prosecutorial decisions that the different decisions should have been made. And as you pointed out, that happens all the time. But at the end of the day, and, you know, several congressmen and women made the point and questions to him like, hey, look, at the end of the day, who makes charging decisions? The prosecutors do. Has that always been the case? Yes, that's always been the case. <laughs> you know, are you prosecutors? No, we're investigators. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that agents and investigators would have a difference of opinion, but it does bother me a little bit that, you know, one to not certainly, you know, if you're in there and you maybe had one or two or three years on the job and you think it's BS because these, you know, weak prosecutors aren't willing to take any risks. I mean, that's something that a new, you sort of a newbie or a novice might sort of feel. But by the time you have 10 or more years, you ought to kind of start having the wisdom to understand that, you know, one of the primary, like, I can't tell you how many times I knew as an investigator that I really believe somebody had done something. 
And at the same time, I knew that it was not likely that we were going to be able to get to the point to be able to prove in a court of law that they had done that. And that's just the way it is. And it happens regardless of political bent or persuasion. It happens on the right. It happens on the left. But if you're sitting there and if you really feel like this is an issue, the first thing I'd say is, okay, well, look, what, why – you want a special prosecutor. Why, you know, as you pointed out, as that clip from Congressman Raskin pointed out, this all was done under a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney. This was all done in the context of Bill Barr, the attorney general at the time, taking a look, saying, I don't think appointing a special counsel is merited. This is all taking place in the context of Hunter Biden pleading guilty to crime. This is not something like, oh, you know, th this is all swept under the rug. It wasn't. The man has, you know, pled or is about to plead guilty. I don't know when the actual entering of a plea is going to occur, if it's occurred already. But this isn't the case where just something was completely ignored. It isn't the case where you have democratic partisan actors trying to sweep it under the rug. Certainly some of the things they're saying are, as you noted, Allison, directly at odds with things that Weiss has said about whether or not he wanted or needed to be a special counsel. And finally, at the end of the day, we, again, going to sort of the judgment and wisdom and maturity of these two folks, if you have a valid complaint, if you want to go to Congress, I would not personally engage as my attorney and take the help and assistance of a group of people and attorneys and funding from folks who are former staffers of Chuck Grassley, people who are related to Cash Patel and hyper-partisans surrounding Trump, those, if I am trying to convey credibility in what I believe and what I'm saying, those aren't the people that I'm surrounding myself with. Right. Those aren't the people that I'm taking the advice from. And so, you know, they, they walk in again, I, I felt a little bit like, you know, my takeaway, people who believed what they were saying, people who were perhaps a little, not just a little in over their head were being used as political pawns and either didn't appreciate or simply didn't care that that's what was going on. Mm hmm. Yeah. And speaking of Grassley, you know, he recently released that 1023, which was chock full of foreign disinformation while simultaneously bashing the Steele dossier and potentially endangering a source. If you're um, Chuck Grassley, look, you got two options, right? There's this 1023 and there's an allegation. You got two choices. A, you think it is viable. You think it needs to be investigated. You think the, the source might have something to say and you need to protect the source until you can run it to ground. Or B, you don't give a damn about what the source has to say and you're going to release this information and you're going to potentially put the source at risk, you know, up to and including potentially, you know, his his life and safety. So they, they, that's that's your choice, one or the other. And Grassley somehow, you know, decides to do neither, saying, well, you know, the, these allegations should have been pursued further and I'm going to release all the information and I'm going to put the source at risk. Well, if you really cared about the source, you wouldn't do that. And the fact that you're releasing it no, clearly right. shows what you think of that source and the value of that source. And it's, it's quite transparent that, you know, just, again, just just go go hang out in Iowa, harvest some corn, eat a damn corn dog at a state fair somewhere around Des Moines, and just stop with this constant endangerment and identification of FBI sources. It, it, it is doing nobody any good. Yeah. But I, I want to talk a little bit about um – Abby Lowell and what happened in in uh, something else that happened in that oversight hearing with Marjorie Taylor Greene because Abby Lowell um, has written a cease. First of all, he wrote a cease and desist letter that we covered last week, and I imagine a lawsuit will follow, which will include new evidence gathered by Denver Riggleman about the Hunter Biden laptop. But he also just filed an ethics complaint against Marjorie Taylor Greene for showing large, blown up pornographic photos of Hunter Biden during that oversight hearing. And the point she was trying to make, I guess, was that the sex act depicted in the photo was a prostitute paid for by Hunter Biden. Uh, and she claims that he wrote that off as a business expense. But the IRS whistleblower right there, Ziegler, um, who the guy who brags about spending five years investigating Hunter Biden, could not confirm that that's what occurred in the photograph, that what occurred in the photograph was written off as a business expense. He said, I can't confirm that. We don't know that. So Abby Lowell has filed an ethics complaint. And it was a letter to uh, the Office of Congressional Ethics, which is kind of where you go before the actual ethics um, committee hears it. It's called the OCE. And he slammed Marjorie Taylor Greene's actions as, quote, abhorrent behavior that blatantly violates House ethics rules and standards of official conduct. 
This week, your colleague has lowered herself and by extension the entire House of Representatives to a new level of abhorrent behavior that blatantly violates House ethics rules and standards of official conduct. If the OCE takes its responsibilities seriously, it will promptly and decisively condemn and discipline Ms. Green for her latest actions. And it goes on to say, now more than ever, the House has a duty to make it loud and clear that it does not endorse, condone, or agree with her outrageous, undignified conduct uh, and brazen violations of the standards of official conduct that do not reflect credibility on the House of Representatives. The OCE, by the way, is a nonpartisan independent entity. It was previously established by the House that reviews it reviews allegations of misconduct involving lawmakers, officers, uh, House staffers. And then if warranted, it would refer that matter to the Ethics Committee. Now, Lowell noted that Green, quote, proceeded to send out a fundraising email to her constituents that included a link to a video that had the nude images of Biden in it. And in doing that, Lowell says the congresswoman may have violated a federal law that pertains to transferring obscene materials to minors, even if one minor was included among the email distribution or was exposed to her outrage. So that is going on with Abby Lowell right now from from that just that incident. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is when I look across the various from Texas to Florida to other, you know, Virginia and other places at the books, Republicans are banning from libraries because God forbid we have any book that talks in any way, shape or form about (laughs) anything they find offensive. And at the same time, you've got, you know, this de facto speaker of the House of Representatives by some accounts showing (laughs) these pornographic images in the middle of the day, you know, I can't go find a Maya Angelou book in the library, but I can turn on C-SPAN and see photographs of Hunter Biden engaged in sexual behavior. It just, there, there, there is such a disconnect mm. in the logic, in the thought process, in the morality of everything the Republicans are claiming to try and do. How is Marjorie Taylor Greene showing this not grooming behavior? How is every, you know, potential kid who's home for the summer, who's tuning into C-SPAN to see how our government works, who maybe goes on the website to the Weaponization Committee or the House Oversight or House Judiciary Committee to see what's going on in our nation's governance, and they see Marjorie Taylor Greene throwing up these photographs? Mm-hmm. How, how can you log- how can you logically do that? I mean, the answer is, of course, you can't. I, I have no <laughs> hope. I mean, you know, I, yes, I, I do hope that the uh, the Office of Congressional Ethics might refer something out. I have absolutely no faith or belief that anybody on the actual, uh, you know, in the well of the Congress is going to raise any sort of censure or other adverse action no. against Marjorie Taylor Greene. And again, Hunter Biden, it, it's. Every, people know this. He has pled guilty. There is not some hidden issue which might be used to coerce through him to get to Joe Biden. Everybody knows about this behavior. It's not like, oh, you know, he's a White House employee like Jared and Ivanka were. Right. Do it's we, have, not like, do we you know, have emails from Joe Biden to Lisa Monaco saying, hey, it'd be real great if you could see your way clear to let this thing go, uh, you know, with uh, Michael Flynn. I'm sorry. I mean, Hunter Biden. Uh, you know, it's not like any of that exists. <laughs> Nobody's pled guilty to that. There's no emails that show that uh, we had it out front and blatant in the Mueller investigation um, with with, uh, as you know, uh, the, the, the Comey loyalty tests and all that bullshit to try to get stuff dropped to Flynn and then Barr actually doing it. Um, you know, and then commuting their sentences uh, with, you know, and pardoning them with Trump, uh, you know, on behalf of Trump. So it's just so backwards. And, you know, of course, every accusation is a confession. But then also we had this weapon. So that was oversight. We had a weaponization committee hearing on censorship. Um, and uh, our good friend Maya Wiley was there, but so was RFK Jr. <laughs> and he was just picked apart uh, by the Democrats on that committee. I found and and it w- there was also uh, the the woman there who wrote the New York Post piece on Hunter Biden and I guess part of the the complaints from from Jim Jordan are that you know they were taken down or somebody tried to get the that story not circulated on social media because it had it was full of lies and uh, you know the fact of the matter is is that Rep Goldman questioned her Ms Gillis I think her name was quite extensively about that and said, look, you you didn't conduct a, a forensic uh, exam of the hard drive that you got from Rudy Giuliani. Nope. The co-author re- took his name off the byline, didn't want to have anything to do with it because there were so many lies in that story. Right. Picked, picked her apart. But the RFK stuff just seemed like a kind of a sideshow that, you know, he was being somehow 
censored by the government who was just asking Twitter to take a look at his stuff, which, by the way, it wasn't even taken down. Uh, it wasn't censored or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, when we have this uh, coming to fruition in that lawsuit filed in a northern district in Louisiana where the one Trump-appointed judge has decided that federal government agencies can, can't communicate, you know, with some exceptions, can't communicate with uh, social media companies, which of course will just chill it all anyway. But of course, that has been stayed by the Fifth Circuit. So they are now allowed to communicate, but you know, not without chilling that kind of uh, communication uh, between the government and, and social media companies about spreading disinformation about child sex trafficking, COVID-19, foreign election interference, domestic terrorism. I mean, it's, it's, this is, they've been on this to try to suppress this for a very long time. Yeah, and the scary thing is like the number of those crazy conspiracy theories that RFK Jr. Uh, supports and espouses. And the funny, what I don't, I, I think this hearing actually did do some good because I think some of the statements that RFK Jr. made in direct contravention of the record, it's like, hey, buddy, you understand that all these things are recorded, right? You understand there is audio tape and videotape of you espousing anti-vax theories, that there's videotape of you. At one point, um, Congressman Goldman said, hey, look- you know, at some point you said at this dinner that COVID-19 in some ways might have been engineered where it was, you know, less that it was designed not to target those people of, you know, sort of either either PRC or Ashkenazi Jew um, genetic makeups. And oh, by the way, you know, I had COVID very, very early on. I am, uh, you know, of a Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Should I be worried about this? And RFK, well, I never said that. And it, any number of times where he said he had not said or done things that then immediately were played back to him saying, oh, no, buddy, how about this? We've all seen it. You, in fact, have said it. Mm -hmm. And so I think what, you know, this hearing did, I think there is a RFK Jr. is quickly whatever credibility he might have had just based on his name and people maybe weren't quite aware of how outlandish some of his beliefs and statements have been, that's all quickly being, the, the lies being put to all of mm -hmm. that. And I think the, to the extent people are becoming aware of him, it's aware in the context of like, holy crap, this guy is out of his mind. Mm -hmm. You know, again, thank you to the House Weaponization Committee for the service of illustrating to America that th this guy should be nowhere near the presidency, let alone the Democratic ticket um, to that. So I guess it's small, small steps, right? Small, small benefits we're getting. Yeah, and and Debbie Wasserman Schultz also uh, picked him apart on that. And his his defense was, I was citing a study from the Cleveland Clinic. She's like, No, you weren't. We've seen the whole video. You didn't cite any study. Reclaiming my time, shut because he just he wouldn't <laughs> let that he wouldn't let that go. Um, all right, well, well, you know, as you know, we'll keep our eyes on on what goes on with weaponization and oversight in the House House Republicans as time rolls on. Of course, uh, Pete, you and I are going to be very busy covering Fulton County as soon as these indictments break. So we'll do our best to stay on top of these committees as well. Uh, but, the, you know, the clown show continues. Uh, somebody referred to it as Animal House, not the House of Representatives. I think it was um, a delegate Plaskett uh, who had said that, who's a ranking member, I believe, on the weaponization committee. All right, we have to take one more quick break. And then we just have a couple of news pieces to wrap up. But uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry, 
We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. We just have a few more stories from the week that are of interest to cleaning up aisle 45. First of all, a federal judge has rejected Trump's motion to move the Manhattan state case, the DA case that Alvin Bragg brought, to federal court. Uh, and the federal judge rejected that because there's no evidence that Trump was acting, quote, under color of law when he hired Michael Cohen as his personal lawyer. And this is from uh, Lisa Rubin on Twitter. She tweeted, follow her at Law of Ruby. She says, as predicted, the nail in the coffin was the testimony on cross-examination of Trump's own general counsel, Alan Garten. The old adage proves true. Putting up a witness whose testimony is not totally known to you in advance is rarely a good idea. And see, what happened here is that Garten (laughs) Garten testified in 2017 that when Trump, he was advised in 2017 to sever himself from his businesses once he took office. And a part of that was Cohen separating himself from the Trump organization and becoming his personal attorney, the personal lawyer for Donald Trump. So the $35,000 Stormy Daniel reimbursement payments were not corporate, but personal. Therefore, Trump can't claim it was under color of law as part of his job as president to hire Michael Cohen as his attorney. And that comes from his own general counsel, Alan Garten's testimony in this case. So, nope, you can't have this taken out of state court and moved to federal court. What were, what, just out of curiosity, Pete, I know we talked about this a little bit over the weekend, but what are some of the reasons Trump wanted to move this to federal court? Well, how does that benefit him? Well, I think a couple of reasons. One, you don't, it introduces delay, right? I mean, there's nothing fast-tracked about this Manhattan case, but certainly if you move it to federal court, if you can delay it long enough where, like everything else, if he gains the uh, presidency, he can simply direct his attorney general to, you know, not pursue the case, to dismiss it. You know, potentially he could go down the route of pardoning himself, but the advantage, much like Georgia, much like, you know, Michigan and other states that are looking at all this behavior, you can't, he doesn't have the ability even if he or some another Republican were to gain uh, the presidency, he can't be pardoned for those state crimes. So I think it is um, the right decision. You know, it's clear that the uh, that this was not something that was done in an official capacity and it isn't something that should be removed up to federal court. And again, it's just one more. It's going to be really interesting, too. You know, when we look at not only we've got this New York case set if you add in Georgia, just the mechanics of scheduling another trial. I mean, this is one more thing to put on his dance card. And I know like Letitia James indicated that, well, we might need to defer, postpone some of the civil proceedings and potentially some of the criminal things going on. It wasn't clear up in New York. But Fonnie Willis has said, look, it's not going to have an impact on what we're doing. So he is going to, when you look at his dance card in 2024, and we had Eileen Cannon setting uh, a, a schedule, which I think will slip, but it is going to get very full for him when we keep adding all these criminal proceedings uh, onto what he's trying to do in terms of running for the presidency. But this this is the right decision in New York. No doubt it should be and remain at a New York state level. And um, I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, the court found, uh, the federal judge found that to be true and rejected his motion. Yeah. I mean, if we just look at, we just do a quick rundown here. October is supposed to be New York Attorney General. Uh, fraud trial against Trump org. January is the Eugene Carroll one case, um, as in the numeral one. Uh, then that could go into February, but February is the pyramid scheme thing, the apprentice pyramid scheme civil trial for Donald Trump. 
March, could go into April. Manhattan District Attorney uh, is scheduled for March 2024. May is the documents case, as just scheduled by Eileen Cannon. That probably will get pushed again, but that's up for May. Um, and, uh, you know, with Fonnie Willis coming in, uh, you know, I'm assuming the courts are pretty backed up in Georgia and we aren't looking till post-election for her to schedule that trial anyhow. Um, but we have January 6th coming in uh, for the, you know, I should say, I just I should call it the coup investigation because it's far more about just the day of January 6th. When does that happen? You know, does do, does he call up Robbie Kaplan on the, at the E. Jean case and say, hey, pal, you want to postpone your thing so I can slide in into January and maybe get this done before the election? It's yeah, it's it's going to be wall to wall criminal and civil trials against Donald Trump for most of the rest of this election season and probably on into possibly 2025 uh, when we take into account uh, Fonnie Willis and how backed up the court is uh, in in that case. So speaking, though, of E. Jean, one other thing that happened, um, a a judge has denied his motion for a new trial in the E. Jean 2 case. Um, and one of the reasons is, you know, first of all, the judge actually says by the definition of rape, you raped her. The the jury may not have found that, um, but by, by our legal definition, that is rape. And, and that might also play into the fact that he's countersued E. Jean Carroll for defamation for going on to say that he raped her saying, no, the jury said I didn't rape you. Uh, but the judge has said as much now. And so, you know, I think that that might also we could see that counterclaim uh, for defamation against E. Jean dismissed, but um, he wanted to have a mo- he wanted to have a whole new trial based on this, and the judge just smacked it down. So no, there will be no retrying of the first E. Jean Carroll case where she was awarded five million dollars. So that also happened this week. We just have so much going on; it's so hard to keep track of, my friend. Yeah, the the best, and I apologize for not remembering the user's name. Somebody, I think it was on Threads, not on Twitter X or whatever the hell we're calling it these days, as it crashes, grinds into the ground. He said, look, what we ought to be doing with all these Trump indictments, we need to go to like the hurricane naming convention, like just start naming them (laughs) after letters of the alphabet. So you have the Archie indictment, then you have the banana indictment, just go down the line because I I swear to God, at some point we're going to be, I mean, into potentially, if you add in certainly these, you know, the, the defamation trials, if you add in the civil actions, it's easily... You know, we're up to, you know, G-H-I-J, but it would at least allow us to, you know, if we start naming all these in a sequential way to to boot, people would be, would be able to keep track of them and it would be, you know, potentially a little bit of fun. So maybe we should start. Or how about some cool a, operation names like, like yeah, Operation Ghost Stories yeah. and Operation Crossfire Hurricane. Absolutely. And, like just, and just do it in sequential order. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll figure out a way to do it or we'll wheel it out during our uh, a patron happy hour or proposed nomenclature for <laughs> keeping track of all these things. God Almighty! Yep, yep. Finally- uh, as you know, the uh, I think uh, people are making a big deal about the fact that Jack Smith was spotted exiting a subway with a subway sandwich, and I had said, "Well, now maybe we can call the uh, combination of um, the documents, indictments, and the coup indictments. We can make let's call that the cold cut combo." And just get it over with. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that could be your C. It's in the C of the alphabet. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I like this idea. We can we can definitely we got plenty to work with here. Yeah, this Dana Bash was like, "Look, it's Jack Smith at Subway," um, and everybody uh, freaked out. Okay. Right. There was a little bit of like, I thought over the top, like, oh, he's signaling. Like, I'm not scared of you. I'm just getting, a, you know, I'm cool as can be and getting and like, no, no, I think it just meant he got he wanted, tuna, which means he, he's going after the big yeah, fish. Exactly. He got and a, he's yeah, like, yeah, no, no, it just means he wanted a sandwich is what it means. I, it, it was a little, yeah. it was a little over and the top. Kyle but. Cheney was, uh, I think. I think Jonathan Wyndham stopped by a, a truck, a, a food truck, and walked away with a lemonade food vitamin water. And Kyle Cheney's all, what does it mean? What does it mean, the vitamin water? And I'm like, oh, you know what it means. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, by the way, I feel a little seen uh, here. And so then, uh, you know, once the uh, indictment came down, I'm like, told you it was the vitamin water, man. And <laughs> we, had a, we all had a good laugh on on Twitter, which no longer... Um, 
might be a viable place to have those kinds of laughs. So follow me on threads and post. I'm at, at Muller, she wrote everywhere on every single platform. I've gone and snagged my handle. So follow me wherever yep. you want to follow. Same me. deal. Pete struck wherever you go. There I am. So it's <laughs> same. And we'll, we'll all figure out where eventually. Z. Okay. Z. Okay. Yes, that's right. <laughs> And I refuse to pay for any <laughs> verification of status that you can go to hell. You will never get my money for that. It's down to $7 now, by the way, on Twitter, on X <laughs> If you whatever. pay in advance, yes, he's, yes. But it's like a freaking Ponzi scheme, just like I'm like throwing some Dogecoin in there, Elon, and, and you might get me to sign up. Ridiculous. Uh, we'll yeah. see. And then poor Linda, what is it, Yacone, Yacob, whatever her name is, like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to turn Twitter, we're going to turn X and all these, you know, everything for everyone. It's, yes. This is this is exactly the sort of stable guidance and leadership that I want to take all of my money and put it on deposit with Elon Musk. That is that's going to be. A, <laughs> We're going to control you know, half of the globe's finances. Yeah, sure he just are. he wants yep. to tank the dollar and make his own new currency. It's weird. All right. Anyway, that's the show. Thank you so much uh, for indulging our last little bit of banter there, because um, it's fun. Uh, if you are not a patron, you can become one, patreon.com slash aisle45pod, and have your name, whatever name you choose, read out by us on the air. Uh, so thank you again to our patrons. You make this show happen. Um, we're still going to put together that uh, Zoom call happy hour with me and Pete, and we'll let you know. We'll, we'll keep you advised in the email that you use to sign up for Patreon. All right, that's it. That's the show. Who knows what we'll be talking about next Wednesday, my friend, but I imagine there may, there's a good chance there might be another indictment, perhaps two, uh, that uh, are coming down maybe in uh, D.C., maybe in Georgia. We'll see, but we will cover it here on Clean Up on Aisle 45. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. And we'll see you next week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.